Good morning. This is Laura Huey, and you're joining me for Sociology 9021, an advanced seminar on qualitative research methods here at the University of Western Ontario. And today's topic is ethnography. And as you can see from the picture here, I am in posing uh, with very different hair and uh, yeah, wow. I, I would never wear that top again. But I am here sit posing in a fake electric chair. Why you ask? Because I, this photo was taken as part of a field research that I did on crime and punishment as a source of tourism, uh, tourist activity, social leisure activity. There's an entire sort of, and some of you may know this, there's an entire sort of field of tourism, leisure uh, studies that is all about crime and punishment. People, for some strange reason, I'm not one of them, like to go and see crime-related things uh, for fun and entertainment, which is why we have places like the London Dungeon, which is a fake, uh, you know, fake Jack the Ripper and everything. Um, there's uh, terror walks in all sorts of parts, different parts of Europe, terror museums and so on. And so this one, uh, I'm sitting, I'm sitting here in this one. It's a kind of what we call a wax museum, I guess, if you will. And it's in upstate New York. And although I'm smiling, I'm inside cringing, 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 cringing. Anyway, let's get cracking. What is ethnography? Fancy term for field work. It is a term used to describe in-depth field-based scientific observations which are intended to shed light on customs, practices, language, behaviors, and so on of people within a particular social setting. Some of the examples of things that you could study, how about how hockey parents behave during children's games? How about policing rituals at academy graduations or change of command ceremonies? Or my personal favorite, how about academic customs at scientific conferences? My PhD supervisor, Richard Erickson, used to kind of half threat, half joke uh, that he would love to do an ethnography of, ac of like academic conferences. Because there's all this really interesting behavior that goes on that if you, if you actually, I'm sure some of this is going to completely resonate with you. Here's one. How about when people, if you've been to an academic conference and people wearing those lanyards around their neck with their name tag, so people, what people do is they immediately look at the name tag. So instead of going, hi, I'm, they, hi, I'm Laura, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, first thing you do is look at the name tag. Or here's another one. If you're talking to somebody and suddenly you notice that their eyes are wandering away over your shoulder because they're looking for somebody else. Um, the whole ritual of trying to schedule meetings with people. Oh, hey, let's get together for coffee. Okay, well, I can't do this and I can't do that. And maybe we could do it. There's a whole ritual around that. So um, those types of customs would be fun. Like, and here's the thing I like about ethnography. For anybody that has a background in anthropology, you'll recognize that a lot of ethnography comes from the field-based research that anthropologists did. Uh, so, you know, this will feel a little bit at home for some of you. And I would argue it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. It can be a lot of fun. Oops. I don't know how the hell I managed to. There we go. 
Usually, I, oh, now I did. This, this slide isn't supposed to be here right now. There we go. This slide is what, see, I hate it when you do these things late at night. You organize your slide deck at 11 p.m. because it always bites you in the butt. All right. A key idea within sociology, particularly qualitative research, especially in ethnography, and I would argue interviewing as well, is this idea of reflexivity, which I've brought up before, but I really want to emphasize it here. It refers to the practice of analyzing personal intersubjective and social processes, which can shape your research project. Here's the thing. I am a white, middle-aged, now middle-class woman, but my background was not those things. We were barely, barely working class. Growing up, we were barely working class slash criminal class. And as a consequence, when I go into different situations, I have to pay attention. And we'll talk about this in interviewing and when we talk about up, down, and across. But we have to pay attention to who we are and what our social position is now, but also what influences um, have come to bear in terms of who and how we are and how we interact with other people. And being aware of those things really can strengthen your research and it can also guide you in terms of where your potential limitations are as a researcher. In this case, in talking about reflexivity, I'm also talking about um, not just acknowledging your role and how, how your background and your privileges and your lack of privileges and certain types of social uh, elements can influence the type of work you do, your ability to do that work, and how you interpret your work. But it also allows us, I think in particular those three things, I think it's important to think about your inherent biases and how they inform your research choices. And more importantly, that you should be honest and upfront when you talk about your research in acknowledging this is my standpoint. This is when we talk about standpoint epistemology, which you'll be happy to hear is not on an exam because, you know, um, it's, it's one of those double-barreled academic jargon terms that, like, people that... I, it took me forever to figure out what the hell epistemology was, let's be clear. Ways of, of knowing or ways of thinking. Um, standpoint, which comes out of feminist research... That part of standpoint epistemology, I think, is fantastic in terms of it doesn't have to be so academically jargony, and it captures this idea of reflexivity perfectly. We have a particular standpoint, regardless of who and what we think we are. We come to our research fully loaded with all, everything that makes us human, including our errors, our biases, our way, the ways in which our understanding of the world has been shaped by experience, by exposure, by luck, by chance, and so on. And by acknowledging that up front and saying this is our standpoint, it gives, it's an honest way of saying to somebody reading our work, this is where we come from. You can agree or you can disagree. All right, so that is my little caveat or my little thing up front saying that this is an important concept that we have to keep in mind as we're talking about ethnography. So how do you do field-based research? I could have sworn I got rid of this graphic. <laughs> like, <laughs> the 
picture of me from the haunt, the, the wax museum is bad enough, but this is actually worse. Researchers typically use one of three techniques, overt, covert, and or participant observation. So let's talk about overt observation. This is where the researcher openly conducts their observations without hiding who they are, what they're doing. They observe the scene, but they are not participating in it. A good example of this is how I spent many afternoons in uh, the Tenderloin area of San Francisco watching how drugs are sold. So as is the case in, in other cities across North America, we have open air drug markets in San Francisco. And I went to a place called Bodifer Park, which is out in the open. The bushes are trimmed so that anybody can see in. And um, I actually sat right in the middle of the park on a park bench. And I just sat there. Of course, I, I in that particular case, I was um, very careful to take notes in a book so it didn't look like I was, um, you know, spying on people. Although, of course, you know, um, people might perceive that that way. But I did it in such an open fashion that people could and did come up to me and ask me what I was doing. And so I told them. And in many cases, those people became research participants in interviews for my study. And I learned a lot. I learned how to, um, not that I'm going to ever use this, I learned how to sell drugs in this open-air drug market just by watching. It has to do with eyes, by the way. I'll tell you that secret another time. So the advantages to using an overt method is, again, you get to observe people in their natural setting in ways that are not easily captured by other research methods. You can't, if I go up to a, a drug dealer and say, hey, I'd like to know more about, you know, how you do business, chances are I'm not going to get much of a response. Potential research participants, as I said, can approach you and get involved in your study. And people might approach you and help to provide critical information on the situation you're observing. I have people come up and basically be like, you know, we'd start chatting about what I was doing and would provide key insights into things that I might not necessarily capture just through observation alone. So there are some disadvantages. People being observed might not necessarily be happy with your presence or your note-taking, especially if you are watching and documenting illegal behavior, behavior that they might not necessarily, um, you know, I'm thinking of research that's been done, for example, in the U.S. with um, racist organizations, white uh, stormfront and other white supremacist groups, you know, going in and ba basically being like, I'm here to study you is probably not going to go over super well. So that over is not going to work there. People might misunderstand who you are and what you're doing and perhaps thinking you yourself are engaged in illegal or other activities. True story, I spent many, I actually also in this tenderloin, uh, on a busy Friday afternoon, stood out on a corner just watching the streetscape for a while to see what was going on. And I realized I was getting really, I was getting some interesting looks from people walking by, particularly men. And then I noticed that there was a woman on another corner who was, seemed to be very agitated. She was staring at me very aggressively and seemed to be agitated by my presence. Then what I realized is that there was a woman on each of those corners, including me. And then what I realized was that I was in an area in which uh, 
sex work was taking place and people were incorrectly assuming that I was there to engage in sex work. So I moved away. I moved where I thought was a careful uh, distance away from, from, you know, I didn't want to interfere with people's business. Uh, I moved away and then of course I got solicited. So then I gave up for the night. Covert observation. This is where the researcher uses some level of deception to hide who they are and or what they're doing. They may, may tell people, for example, they're filming a documentary when they are really conducting a study. Um, again, a classic example of the use of covert methods is in, is in research to do with uh, far-right extremism. And as I said, groups like Stormfront and so on, then there's been some very good ethnographies that have come out of that work where people basically went undercover as um, white, white ra I call it white racism, but they call themselves white nationalists, uh, to understand the dynamics of these groups, their ideology, their behaviors and practices, and so on. An example I can tell you from my own personal experience is I was interested in this, actually, by the way, this was the basis of my master's thesis. I went to an area of Vancouver where uh, it's Gastown, which is adjacent to the downtown east side in Chinatown. It's a nice little tourist area where people come off the cruise ships and go and buy go and buy things, and then people come down and go to the restaurants and so on. There's a fair number of people who are impoverished who either live there and they're trying to force out, or live adjacent and come in to panhandle and so on and or to ask for food or or what have you and so private security guards were hired by the Gastown Business Improvement Association they were hassling people who were you know in the space that they didn't think belonged and so to actually capture that I pretended to be I adopted multiple personas and multiple outfits and pretended to be a tourist a university student and a business person so that I could be in the space and not attract attention. Of course, um, I got caught, and we'll talk about that in visual sociology a little bit more detail, but um, actually, do I have that? I'm now I'm wondering if all my slides are messed up. I don't know where my slide is. Okay, well, I have a picture of myself, and it's in one of these slide decks. Uh, I have, sorry, not a picture of myself. I have a picture that I took when I blew my own cover in that particular research. Um, I wanted to actually get a picture of the private security guard hassling a homeless person, asking them for personal details that he was recording. And to do that, I had to break cover to take the photograph, at which point he then targeted me. Uh, all right, so what are the advantages of covert observation? Well, you get to see behavior that might otherwise be hidden to you. In certain situations, it might actually be safer to be seen as a sympathetic or a person or as an ally rather than as an outsider. But there are disadvantages. First of all, there are ethical issues around its use. Is it fair to observe someone without their knowledge? And is it more or less fair to observe people in public rather than private space? There's arguments around in private space, you absolutely 100% must have research ethics. In public or semi uh, in public spaces, that is a subject of debate. In semi-private public spaces, I'm thinking like malls, you can make the argument that either way, you should have research ethics or you should not. 
Um, the, the general sort of sense is if you are in public, it's equivalent to pub publishing something in the public domain. You, anybody can observe you at any time. So if you are recorded by a researcher, notes are taken about you, then how is that different from say a CCTV camera or a tourist taking accidentally getting your picture or people remarking on your behavior when you're out in public? Again, this is a subject that could be an entire d debate and discussion, which it's unfortunate we are not together. We could have that, but um, for now, I will just raise those issues. And of course, researchers, when they do covert research, always run the risk of having their true activities revealed, which can pose a safety concern. Then there's participant observation. This is where the researcher participates in the activities that they're studying. One example is a police officer uh, who was interested in vehicle stops and searches, which um, is a subject of a lot of controversy. You know, it flares up and down at different points, but general, the general con concern and consensus is, particularly in the U.S., we have a lot less data in Canada, so this could be a whole research project for someone. Although Greg Brown at Carleton has done some work in this area. But the idea being that people of color get stopped and their vehicle get stopped in their vehicles a lot more frequently and are much more subject to searches, both legal, uh, sorry, illegal searches of their vehicles much more frequently. So what Constantino, I can't, I'm sorry, I am sorry. I can't, Constance, Constantino. I, this is where it would be fabulous to have. There's pro, there is probably somebody, there's probably a student who's just rolling their eyes at this horrendous pr pronunciation right now. And quite frankly, I don't blame you. All right. So this is what this researcher did. He, he spent six months embedded as a member of his organization's emergency response unit so he could observe vehicle stops and searches and document what was taking place. Um, there's other types of, I've done, um, typically participant observation is you're embedded with a group or a network or an organization or an institution. You're already engaged in these practices, but then you put your researcher hat and try to step back a little bit to observe them and to also observe your own experience participating in them. That's off typically how it's done, but you can also participate in different ways. So for example, in research I've done, in uh, the Cowgate Grass Market area of Edinburgh, which has um, a home, like has a number of homeless services, services for homeless citizens, I've gone down to the the soup kitchens and and you know been involved in in um, feeding people and just documenting that process. And first of all, I find it incredibly rewarding to do that, and also you build up your bond with the local community, which, which is nice as well as a researcher. So some of the advantages, well, you have an, in, typically you have an insider's experience of doing a particular activity or being in a particular environment. Nobody has to explain all the, all, everything that's going on to you because you have some underlying understanding. If you're an outsider, people will drop their guard more readily and accept you. And again, um, I use the example of working in uh, a, a soup kitchen as, as to illustrate that. Some of the disadvantages, well, if you're an insider, your colleagues might become suspicious and distrustful of you. Are you spying? Are you gonna report this? 
And when people accept you in that role, sometimes you can attract some of the negative consequences that come from that, such as a citizen thinking you are, for example, a social worker and responding negatively to you. This has happened to me when I've, uh, when I've engaged in activities within shelters in which I've tried to you know, feed people or help in other ways, is that sometimes people are unclear as to what your role is and then you care, you, you attract some of the uh, emotional and other issues with the role that they ascribe to you. So, for example, oftentimes people will be upset with their social worker because paperwork wasn't done on time or you didn't get me this uh, opportunity or, you know, I didn't like how you treated me and so on. Oftentimes home, uh, homeless citizens feel that service providers are patronizing towards them and so if they feel that way and they associate you with that you're going to attract some of that and I've had to explain to people yeah, yeah no that I'm not I don't do that I'm not that for and what here's what my role is although in one situation a guy started yelling at me about turning down the the volume of the music in the, in the soup kitchen literally yelling at me and demanding that I do this and um was a little bit surprised when I yelled back and said, I'm not, I don't work here. Turn it down your damn self. <laughs> it's like, so, you know, it can be, it can be challenging. You have to remember, you know, not to react in some situations. And I'm not always very good at that, but he, afterwards we laughed about it. So in terms of data collection, there's various ways to collect data in the field, but I'm going to focus on three basic ones, note-taking, mapping, photographs, and videos. So note-taking, this is the backbone of all field-based research. Researchers, can you can use audio devices to take digital notes, um, handheld devices for keying in observations, or you can be old school like me, which is pen, pen and paper. However you do it, make sure your notes are dated and timestamped with the locations listed. Then if you are doing, if you are doing notes, um, digital, audio, or handwritten, when, as soon as you get home, make sure that you say you upload them where, to your laptop or your desktop. Make sure that you save everything on multiple devices. Multiple, I'm holding my little USB key here, like as though you could see it. You can, I'm telling you. I got, I'm actually now holding two of them. I also, um, you know, I think it's a good investment to get a, um, what the hell is the word I'm looking for? A portable device, like a portable uh, memory device. I like, I'm, I'm literally like, oh, I'm out of coffee too. Ah, okay, uh, a disc, well, disc, whatever. Get a plug and play, form of memory so you can store everything in one central location but also make sure that you also store them on secured USB keys your notes are you could photograph them that might not actually be a bad idea um, here's the thing if you don't do this and you know you lose them your uh, hard drive gets wiped out you are going you cannot re it is very difficult to recreate anything in fact I'm gonna argue you probably will miss a lot because you didn't recreate something. If you're taking photographs with your phone, again, make sure that you, yes, thank God for the cloud, 
you know, there, it, it, nothing is ever gone forever, but just make sure that you, you know, I, I like to email myself stuff all the time so that I've got it in multiple locations. Um, I've got it in multiple locations on the cloud. I've got it in multiple locations on different device. I'm like paranoid that way because I've heard people losing their entire PhD dissertation because they didn't back stuff up. Here's an example of some field notes that I took. This is from my own PhD research in 2003. I am writing up field notes in a coffee shop on Hastings Street. A female addict walks in and approaches. It is clear that she was dual diagnosis, meaning executively and mentally ill. Conversation is strange. She has seen my notes and wants to know what I'm doing. I explain that I'm doing research on how the police treat people in her community. She becomes suspicious and angrier. She demands money. She tells me that she thinks I'm a narc and is going to tell her friends about me. She asks for money again, and when I say no, she calls me a narc in a loud voice so that others in the restaurant can hear and storms out the door. To find her friends, she says. She stares at me in the restaurant window for a minute and then walks away. This is a serious threat. I quickly leave before she comes back. If you are, I mean, in, in, uh, some in most street-based communities that is a very serious allegation and people I was working in San Francisco Tenderloin when an undercover police officer on a bicycle had somebody run up behind him and stab him to death um, so this happens so it, you know this is example of one afternoon conducting field research and it also illustrates some of the potential dangers depending on the nature of the field research you're doing I also like to map I think it's important to document social and social and physical features of a, of a landscape if you're working in space we call the term we use is built environment so the built environment is is the buildings, the sidewalks, the roads, the lamps, the park benches, the tree, like that, you know, because even the trees, because the trees, guess what, in a manicured park. Okay, okay guys, come here, come on. Meet Lucy and Chewbacca. Come, come, would you like a treat? Would you like a treat? Hang on, I'll be right back. I need to engage in some bribery. Come on, Pop. I just bought a couple extra minutes. Okay, so um, included in the map, I say, should be not just street names, but also important social and physical locations within the sites in which you're working. This is assuming that your field research is, is, in, uh, is in some type of a physical and social space that, you know, like in this case, this is the Cowgate Grass Market area of Edinburgh where I was doing my work and I've documented here some of the key places. So when I said that I was working at, in a soup kitchen, that was the um, Greyfriars Kirkyard Mission, which is right here. And here is Hunter Square. This is a place where a lot of drug activity takes place, a lot of drug selling. 
and this is the Canongate Kirkyard. So people would buy drugs here and consume them here. Whereas here, um, there was a lot of, and here, there was a lot of uh, visible alcohol use. So the, in terms of the story that I was going to tell with my ethnography, it was important to map those locations out. Here's another one. This is the San Francisco Tenderloin. So I talked about Bodeker Park. Well, here's Bo Bodeker Park, which is an open-air drug market, and you'll notice it's kitty corner to the Tenderloin Police Station. And here is Union Square, which is the you know central tourist area. So you get it, you start to get a sense of what some of the pressures were on the people that were living in the Tenderloin district because nobody past Powell, well actually probably past Taylor, wanted to see any visible signs of quote unquote disorder. So <clears throat> this is, you know, and I use this map to, do to talk about those pressures. Photos and videos as field notes. Uh, I always argue, and you're gonna get a whole thing on visual sociology about this, that field notes, photos as field notes is highly efficient because it allows you to capture a lot of things that you'd be spending a lot of time documenting by hand or through your voice recorder. And it is highly effective in terms of showing what it is that you observed. So it, a good field, what I would argue is a good photograph can accomplish uh, two important tasks, provide important details, and be an effective tool, as I said, for communicating your findings. Ah, here's my picture I couldn't find. This is the picture that I was taking when I got, when I got, um, became the target of suspicion by the security guard. Here he is literally asking this man personal information and the man's answering because he doesn't know what his rights are. And he's recording this and this is gonna be uploaded to a database and information about this person is gonna be shared with business owners throughout this area. Now I could tell you about that or I could actually, I could tell you about that and you might be even potentially skeptical, but here's a picture. And we tend to believe what we see. So in terms of verifying my claims, this is, or the veracity of my claims, this is one way to do that. Uh, as well, it, it gives you a graphic illustration of this process that I've been talking about. By the way, if you hear gnawing in the background, that is Lucy and Chewy going to town on their treats. Here's another example. This is from field work that I did in Chicago uh, where I did an, uh, a huge multi-city project on victimization of homeless women. And I wanted to get give people a sense of just like how rough the life, like, you know, when people talk, oh, choice, you know, it's a lifestyle choice. I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. This is one of the better shelters for women in Chicago, this space. Um, I've seen much worse, much, much worse. And what's sad about this is that this woman had just had a birthday and her family had brought her some things. And, you know, it just really captures sometimes like the, the elements of struggle and how hard it can be, especially if you've been a victim of violence, to, to get out of a cycle of 
you know, especially without support and treatment to get out of a, a cycle that is often linked, directly linked to homelessness through domestic violence and other forms of victimization. Chewy, nobody wants to hear you right now. So what are the strengths of ethnography in general? It can be used to answer important how and why questions that can't be easily answered by other conventional methods. It can help to identify new and previously unknown issues. Typically, there's minimal research costs. It's your time and energy. Now that said, I've done field research in multiple cities across. My PhD was Vancouver, which was easy. I lived there. Edinburgh and San Francisco. So it's not always the case. If you're doing comparative work, it can cost a little, quite a little or a lot. And it, but it does allow for a more complex way to present and therefore to understand a social phenomenon. The one thing I want to explain about ethnographers, and I think it's really important, we are the storytellers. Chewy, good thing I'm wrapping this up. I think I'm testing my dog's patience. Chewy, come, come on. Chewy, we are the storytellers of social sciences. We craft, we pull all this work together to craft really rich, nuanced, complex analyses because guess what? The social world is rich and complex and nuanced and chaotic and everything else. And oftentimes when you look at research, you get like a little slice of that, but you don't get that full dense picture. I'm reading a fantastic book right now by a guy called Robert Vargas. And I believe it's based out of his PhD work at Northwestern. And it is called Wounded City. If you get a chance, it is a fantastic, especially if you are interested in urban sociology or uh, criminology, it is a fantastic book about Chicago, and he, he focuses on um, uh, uh, Latino communities and how this idea of, and, and, and obviously um, there's an aspect of it is about gang-related violence, but it's also about how communities can come together how institutions can support those communities, where it works, where it doesn't work, and how complex the whole issue is. It can't be reduced to like, oh, we just need to invest in more in communities because there are many community prevention, violence prevention activities that, that tank. You need to have a, that fuller picture. And why is it that some, some spaces work very well and others don't? What Vargas actually is able to demonstrate through his field-based research is that literally within blocks of each other, you can have prevention efforts that work and prevention efforts that don't within the same neighborhood. And he, part of his argument is that it's not enough to talk about cities or neighborhoods. We have to actually look at things from a block by block perspective because things change, can change so radically from block to block. Anybody that's done any kind of urban um, field-based research knows this. Uh, and my work in the Tenderloin is a classic example. We go back to the map. Literally, you go one block to the, I'm trying to remember, one block to the east, and you hit, you hit Gucci, Louis Vuitton, you hit Neiman Marcus, you hit Bulgari, you hit Chanel, you hit all that. 
you're one block to the west and you see a massive concentration of urban poverty with all the issues that you typically um, you see people of color, you see um, addiction, you see uh, obviously you see tons of you know various forms of impoverishment, including as I've said before, people actually sleeping out on the street on cardboard. You see all of that, and that's literally there's literally a line from one street to the next, one block to the next. So again, um, my big recommendation is if you're interested in field-based research, you're interested in ethnography, read work like Wounded City. Read Mitch Dunier's Sidewalk. That's another great, awesome uh, ethnographic research. Uh, I would also argue there's a guy called, mm, it will come to me, but there's another one that was done. I've got to tell you, the University of Chicago and I would say Northwestern, a lot of like have produced some fantastic, oh, I got another, fantastic ethnographers. My colleague Forrest Stewart just released a book called, um, it's about drill music and uh, the use of the internet for people who are gang affiliated and wanna, you know, create, I think it was called Ballad of the Bullet, but that, I think that might be the earlier version of it. But Forrest Stewart has done some fantastic work. He's also done some fantastic work on looking at Los Angeles and the policing of Los Angeles. So there are some really first-rate ethnographers that are out there. And, and the good news is these are up, young, up-and-coming people that did their field-based research as part of their PhD. And Forrest Stewart then went to... Stanford and created a ethnography lab, which you can follow online if you're so interested. So again, there's lots of really cool stuff out there that's available to you if you're interested in it and you want to know how to be a, uh, an, not just an ethnographer, but contribute to that sort of rich storytelling vision of social science that can really illuminate important insights. I feel like I've just like, now I'm, I'm like, uh, you know, I'm going to break out into song any minute in here. So I better stop. And uh, we could talk about the disadvantages, but uh, forget it. I love ethnography. And if you want the disadvantages, I think I've given you a few previously good enough. All right, I'm babbling. So I'm going to say catch 